Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Hello and welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40. Created and hosted by me, writer and broadcaster, Sam Baker. My guest today is the best-selling author, Curtis Sittenfeld. I first came across Curtis when both of our debut novels were named Ones to Watch by Time magazine. They turned out to be right about one of us, but it wasn't me. Anyway, since that first novel, Prep, hit the big time, Curtis has written six more novels and two short story collections the most famous of which is the transatlantic bestseller American Wife, a fictionalised look at the life of Laura Bush, wife of George W. Bush, that ponders the question of whether she would have voted for him. Her latest novel, Romantic Comedy, is a total departure and absolutely the tonic we need right now. It asks pertinently, so how come hot, accomplished women persistently marry average blokes? But it doesn't seem to work the other way around. And what would happen if it did? It's not surprising to me that stunningly beautiful, successful women are apparently happy to date funny men. In some ways, the surprising part that's also unsurprising is that super successful men don't tend to seem to seek out funny but ordinary women. Curtis joined me from her home in a very snowy Minneapolis to talk about how men constantly punch above their weight, why rom-coms are having a comeback, and how she found her funny. We also discussed writing out your emotions, why old is not a synonym for bad, and how weird shit has happened to almost everyone by the time they reach their 40s. When we last saw each other, I knew I was moving to Minnesota, but I lived in St. Louis, Missouri. Five years ago, you interviewed me in, in that tiny hotel room. Yeah. You know, being interviewed in like like such a small space, I think like our knees were touching or something. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, everybody thinks it's so glamorous, don't they? But I've done interviews on ironing boards in hotel rooms. It's like, yeah. I think people think everything's a junket. Everything's all kind of glamour and yeah, it's not. So how is life? How is everything with you? I mean, 
<laughs> good overall. Obviously, it's been, you know, kind of a crazy few years, but, you know, I'm very much looking forward to my book publication. And it's, I mean, it, this sounds like very self-evident, but it turns out it's fun to write a fun book. <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> <laughs> It really felt like it exudes fun on every single page. So tell tell us a little bit about the premise of romantic comedy. It's like literally is what it says on the tin. So it's quite a departure for you. Okay, so I mean I can I can go back as far or as you know short as as you prefer. But when Rodham came out in the spring of 2020, which of course you know none of us could have anticipated that that there would be a pandemic. People would say to me, well, what do you want to write or what are you going to write for your next book? And I would say I want it to be short and fun. <laughs> and then I started working on a novel in the summer of 2020, worked on it for about maybe eight months, seven or eight months, and realized it was neither short nor fun. <laughs> and so then it's like spring 2021. And it happened that during the pandemic, my family had watched a lot of Saturday Night Live. Have you watched much Saturday Night Live? A little bit. We don't get it here unless you stream it, but I think people know the premise, but we don't really have anything like it. So I, in real life, I'm six years older than the character of Sally. But one thing that, that I have in common with Sally is she is the same age as the show The Night Owls. And I am the same age as Saturday Night Live. Saturday Night Live and I were both born in 1975. <laughs> I've kind of watched it off and on almost my whole life, like since I was in grade school. When, of course, I didn't understand most of it, but I knew, I knew it was a little naughty and intriguing. <laughs> so anyway, so I introduced my own kids to it. I think they also found it naughty and intriguing early on in the pandemic. We watched a lot and I noticed this phenomenon, which other people have noticed, where male writers for the show and cast members who are talented, definitely talented, but, you know, relatively ordinary looking end up dating and in some cases marrying female celebrities, actresses or um, musical guests who come on the show um, who are sort of you know, goddesses where they're like gorgeous, super famous celebrities at the top of their game. And so it feels like there's a little bit of a status imbalance, which we can go much more into that if you want to. But I thought, oh, yes, yeah, I thought I thought someone (laughs) should write a screenplay for a romantic comedy about a female writer for a show like this, a sketch comedy show, who thinks that the reverse would never happen for a a sort of talented but ordinary female writer would never have a romance with a transcendently famous, gorgeous male celebrity. And then it happens. So I had that thought. And then, you know, probably, I'm trying to think of the, like, reconstruct the timing of this. Probably a year passed. And then I thought, the someone who should write that should be me. And it should be a Screenplay, it should be a novel, basically, because I don't really know how to write a screenplay. So then I did. And then, and it also, like, I actually anticipated, this makes me sound very foolish. I anticipated that 
this book would be 90 pages, not 300. So I thought it's definitely going to be fun. And it's, I know, what was I thinking? Didn't you start thinking Rotten was going to be super short and then write like 500 or something? I know, hope springs eternal. Um, Because I thought it has three sections and each section will be 30 pages, which it does have three sections. (laughs) I was was half right. (laughs) The thing that was like such a great decision about writing this book was that I like doing research for fiction. And the the research that I did was listening to comedians interview each other on podcasts and reading memoirs by people who've been on Saturday Night Live. So it was just this total escapist delight. So you basically read memoirs by Tina Fey and Amy Poehler and called it work. (laughs) Well, I actually, the funny thing is, those specific people, I had already read their memoirs for pleasure (laughs) years before. And I did, of course, look at them again. Because so many people who've been on Saturday Night Live are also writers and, you know, often write their own material. There's like I'm looking up at my bookshelf. Let's see. I probably read Tracy Morgan. I don't know if these names are familiar to you. Rachel Dratch, Molly Shannon, Jay Moore, Colin Jost. Like there's tons of memoirs. And then there's there's a 750 page oral history of the show. So it's like little snippets from many people. And that was so fun to read. And so valuable in terms of the details. The first part, the part which is the week of a, an episode of Saturday Night Live, without knowing very much about Saturday Night Live, it still, it made me feel so, I mean, I felt like you must have been there and hung out for a week. So, the, you know, so it felt so vivid. So it's funny because there, because Saturday Night Live is such a cultural institution in the US, a lot has been written about it. And in fact, there's even, there's like a documentary made a few years ago called Saturday Night that follows the show for a week. So after I was almost finished finished with the book I went to a dress rehearsal so on Saturday night there's like a you know dress rehearsal with an audience and then there's the live show and I actually couldn't get tickets to the live show but I got a ticket to the dress rehearsal and I interviewed people who've worked there so I didn't get to go backstage I wasn't in like the nooks and crannies of the studio I was a member of the studio audience But by that point, I had done the bulk of what's in the book. The details are based on research. They're not based on firsthand experience. Although I've taken it as a big compliment that several people have said, oh, did you work at Saturday Night Live? And I think like, oh, only only in my dreams. The premise is so, the geek getting the girl, you know, the kind of premise that you wanted to subvert. It's just so, it's everywhere, isn't it? It's been everywhere as long as I can remember, as long as I've been alive, it's been the stuff. And then celebrity marries the dork and they live happily ever after. And and I don't know enough about Saturday Night Live to know any examples, but that was pretty much what happened until he took too many prescription drugs and dumped her. But with Matthew Perry and Julia Roberts, wasn't it? I mean... He was just like a beginning actor on Friends and she was a guest star and she's been on Notting Hill and, you know, she's the, one of the biggest actors in the world. It's funny because that's an interesting example. Like that's not most people's go-to example, but I think there are, <laughs> there are men. <laughs> oh, well, I don't know. Well, he's a big celebrity now, but he wasn't then. Yeah. I don't know. But yeah, I know what you mean. But that kind of, you know, basically every rom-com ever is predicated on the geek getting the girl, isn't it? And it's like, just doesn't happen the other way. And it really doesn't happen the other way when the girl is 40. Ha! Or nearly. Uh, Which I have to say, I mean, again, I thought like, 40's young. (laughs) 
Yeah, exactly. Like I felt conscious of kind of thinking like I have to I have to think about the ways she's younger than I am and her cultural references that might be different. Yeah. I mean, it's not that your earlier books were hard work in any way, but they weren't, you know, I mean, this is really, really laugh out loud funny. And one of my favorite lines was about the case of Nancy Drew and the disappearing abortion access, which like really made me weep with laughter. Have you had that funny tucked up your sleeve the whole time? <laughs> well, okay. So one, I feel like actually, it's, it's, this is an interesting question to answer because obviously humor is very subjective. I think that in general, I think my books are humorous or funny for books where the primary goal is not to be humorous or funny. Like if, yeah. if you handed this to somebody and said, it is just hilarious. I feel like the person might start reading and be like, Man, like sort of, you know, like their, their expectations might be too high. But if you say this is essentially like a straightforward emotional novel, then I think there's lots of humor in all my books, just because I think life is very funny. Like, you know, like life, is every day when people interact with each other it's like awkward funny you know sweet annoying so it's almost like if you just kind of can capture the way life really is all of that will be in your book but I mean I do feel aware of myself as not professionally funny and so I I see this as a book where there's like humor is an element of it but I don't I know that I'm not a comedy writer and and I even think I think that like probably with all my books, there's something, there's something where other people think like, how did you have the nerve to do that? Like whether it's doing a modern retelling of Pride and Prejudice or like writing a book where Hillary Rodham is a character and it uses her maiden name and but her her real maiden name. And I think the way that I talk myself into doing it is by kind of like making my own guidelines clear to myself. And so if you had said to me, you have to write write a hilarious book about working in the comedy world. I think I would have found that too intimidating. But if it's like you just have to write a novel that's about people interacting and sometimes humor bubbles up, that felt manageable to me. Yeah, I mean, I think ultimately it, it has it does have a lot in common with your other books because it's about the kind of the double standards that are applied to women, whether it's you know, a female politician or a politician's wife or, you know, a comedy writer. It's still that constantly judged on your appearance and you're constantly judged on your age. And like, don't be too funny or too clever and don't make the men feel small. And even though things are meant to, and I'm sure they have changed in many arenas, that's still, I mean, that was still present when I left the corporate environment, which a while ago now, but not that long ago. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree with you about that, the thread running through my various books. What fascinates you about it? Well, it's funny because I think in terms of the story or the plot and what happens to an individual person, which is almost always, you know, a female protagonist. Um, but the comedy world, you know, has in, in the US certainly has tended to be somewhat imbalanced in terms of gender representation. So so 
so I think, of course, issues of gender arise. Issues of gender are certainly baked into the premise where a woman is saying, why does this phenomenon that's like very unremarkable for men, where, where essentially what this phenomenon of clearly dating up, why is it so unusual as to almost be invisible for women? So I write fiction to kind of grapple with issues or questions or phenomena that I think are interesting. I don't really write fiction to necessarily make a clear argument because I don't, I think I, I think I'm sometimes mm -hmm. arguing with myself on the page. And I also will say there was this recent column, I tweeted it, the comedian Rebecca Shaw wrote for The Guardian, basically saying, I think people call her MRAT, Emily Ratajkowski. Oh yeah. So it's, it's a column by this female comedian who herself is a lesbian saying, of course, MRAT is dating this male comedian, Eric Andre, like, why are you surprised that women like dating interesting, funny people? And I feel that way. Like, so, you know, having thought about this, it's not surprising to me that stunningly beautiful, successful women are apparently happy to date funny men. In some ways, the surprising part that's also unsurprising is that super successful men don't tend to seem to seek out funny but ordinary women. I actually saw there was some study. I saw saw this also in a tweet where a study was done and it, it said, I, sh I should like find out so I can kind of properly cite this, but there was a study that said both men, I think both straight men and straight women will say they really value a sense of humor in the person they date. And what women mean is a person who makes them laugh. And what men me mean is a person who laughs at their jokes. And I just thought like, oh God, like that is... But it's such a bummer. I know. So depressing. And yeah, it feels anecdotally it's, accurate. It's like you have a line in there with Sally and another character who we won't spoiler, where she basically says that sharing a sense of humor was good enough for her, but not for him. And he's one of the guys who subsequently, you know, punches above his weight, shall we say. And I do think, I think that that is, it's just so true. I think there's also been a bit of research on this, but it, it also is trotted out so often it's kind to become legend about the way women won't apply for a job unless they're 100% qualified for it. And men will apply for a job if they think they can do a little bit of it. And it's like that they're applying that same principle to relationships, like they're applying for women they're not, they're simply not qualified for, and they're getting them. That's so true. That's really, really true. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, do you think that the representation of women is getting better in fiction than it was and on screen? Yes. I think there's a much greater diversity of storytelling. I mean, I think there are certain restrictive cultural or physical norms that are still overvalued. But, but I think that I mean, even in like the romantic comedy category of book, you could very easily find books with queer protagonists, protagonists of color. And I think that wasn't that common when I was growing up. So I do think it's it's like, you know, heading in the right direction that more stories are being told. And, you know, I think there's there's still room for growth. It does seem like romantic comedies are having like a little bit beginning to have a bit of a resurgence, doesn't it? I think that's true. And I think, again, I mean, I feel like I'm, I'm not like a clinician or, you know, somebody who sort of stands outside culture and analyzes it, like I'm kind of part of the culture. But 
Um, I do think this is a moment where, not to say that all romantic comedies are, you know, like one dimensionally upbeat, but I think there is an appetite now for kind of upbeat stories or like, I I certainly will read very serious books, but I often won't read them before bed. (laughs) And so I think, I think there can just be like, (laughs) you know, wanting to immerse yourself in like a fun, fizzy, romantic, escapist story when the external world feels dark and stressful. Yeah, I was just going to ask what part the pandemic played in you were deciding, I'm going to write this book, I'm going to write a book that's just fun. Oh, it played a huge part. I do not think I would have written this book if not for the pandemic. Yeah. I mean, and I think there's also an element for a lot of people where like, life can hold challenges. Like I think for a lot of people, there's there's sort of, you know, things that happened during the pandemic that weren't the pandemic itself, but that were also like hard or difficult. And I just, I definitely feel like I made a very deliberate choice. I mean, given that I, I was writing this other book, I just thought it's not sufficiently escapist for me as a writer. I mean, I I definitely wrote the book that I wanted to read. And something that's interesting about this book, partly I think this had to do with rates of COVID, but I wrote this more quickly than any book that I've written. But it was during a year when I like almost completely didn't travel. It was from, Mm. you know, sort of like summer 2021 to summer 2022, when I was not socializing very much. And I think I went on one trip during that time. And this is one of those sort of boring logistical things that I think can really influence writing. But if I go to do a book event in another city, it's often like I spend a day traveling, I then spend a day doing the event, I spend a day coming home. And then then I spent a day like readjusting to being home. So I'm just kind of constantly interrupting myself. And then I also interrupt myself on the writing front where I might be like writing a novel and then I'll think like, "Mm, I'm going to just write a short story on the side and interrupt myself for a month. I don't don't even know why. I mean, it's not really like a logical choice. And I really, I just felt like I lived inside the world of romantic comedy for a year. Like I didn't, and I think it partly was again, that it was like so fun to listen to comedians interviewing each other. And I mean, a lot of comedians, you know, have had dark things happen to them or their comedy has come from pain. So it's not like mm-hmm. it's a 100% like upbeat world. Or, you know, if you hear a comedian be interviewed, often they'll talk about their life challenges. But just like on the whole, it was such a pleasure to exist in the world of romantic comedy. I think from a writer perspective, that's really interesting because as a writer now, you're expected to do tons of events be kind of pretty much on call for quite a long period of time before and after your book is published to have a social media presence and to keep that social media presence going the whole time you obviously can't just like pop up just before the book's published and then pop off again and those things are just like they're not conducive to producing a hundred thousand words by the end of the year they're just not yeah because my first book was published in 2005 from the beginning of my career i had a website i was not always active on social media but i always had a website my books were always reviewed online including by non-professional reviewers so i think i'm probably like some of the first generation to kind of come up in an online 
publishing environment. And I think there are real pros and cons. Like I, I definitely, while writing this, was quieter on social media. But yeah, you're right. I mean, I didn't go totally silent. One thing, I'm extraordinarily lucky that writing is my full-time job. So, you know, I can say, okay, I'm going to do writing. And then maybe later in the afternoon, I'll post something on social media. And this is very hypocritical because it's like, you would not have a difficult time seeing like a post that I posted at, you know, 9.45 in the morning. But I think I can divide the day that way so it doesn't take over my brain first thing in the morning. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. In romantic comedy, there's a line where you say Sally writes out her fury. And it made me wonder, does Curtis write out her fury? <laughs> um, I mean, I think I write out like all of my emotions. So I don't I don't think I'm primarily fury motivated, but there is definitely outrage in my writing. There's like confusion, there's humor, there's affection. Like I think it's all in there. I guess it would kind of be hard not to. Do you find it possible to totally separate yourself when you're writing? Okay, this is take my Curtis head off because I personally couldn't do that. I don't think that's my goal. And I actually, weirdly, I think the older I've gotten, the more disinclined I feel to write nonfiction. I sometimes do it, but I don't think that for me personally, I don't think writing nonfiction about subjects close to my heart helps my fiction. I think it's almost like saving my deepest emotions for my fiction, I think does help my fiction. But it's also, it's not like, 
you know, my deepest emotions come out in like a one-to-one way, or it's not as if the protagonist is a stand-in for me. Like writing fiction can give me the opportunity to sort through a lot of things. And if I sort through some of those same things in nonfiction, I think it actually robs my fiction. So so I will say, like when you're talking about like sending a tweet, it feels like no big deal. Like a sort of book promoting tweet isn't usually a big deal. But if if I were to write an essay, I don't know, like like if I were to write an essay that was kind of like how I arrived at my current outlook on romance and marriage, I, th- I think yeah. I, don't, I think that, it's, that makes me feel like a. Um, like a butterfly pinned to, you know, a piece of paper or like a wall or something yeah. in a museum. Yeah, kind of like cork boards, aren't they? They almost like, yeah, a, yeah, yeah. like a display. Uh, yeah. It kind of feels like oversimplifying things or over-explaining things. I love reading other people's essays. I love autobiographical essays. I love memoirs. I love when people, you know, sort of explore social issues and emotions. But for me, I think that sometimes trying to put into coherent sentences in a non-fictional way what I think about life. It feels like it's kind of maybe preempting the opportunity to like explore the rich messiness of life in fiction. Is there a certain extent to which you can also get to hide a little bit in fiction? I mean, I think there's like, (laughs) there's plausible deniability. Like, um, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know, like in some ways, something that's kind of amusing to me about fiction is even if I said to you, this is all made up, you know, none of these characters are real. None of these conversations happened. Like, I can't hide the fact that I thought that this topic was interesting enough to spend a year or two of my life on, you know, so it's it's almost like if somebody Mm -hmm. writes a novel that has lots of astronomy in it. Obviously, they consider astronomy interesting. So it's like the fact that I keep writing about sort of neurotic middle-aged women, like obviously I find neurotic middle-aged women interesting. Like I can't, (laughs) I think fiction writers are often kind of hiding in plain sight. As you've got older, did you, how do you feel like your sensibility has changed, if at all? Huh, that's an, I mean... This is probably a strange question, but do you mean as a writer or a person or both? (laughs) Because I suppose I would assume that your personal sensibility would affect your writing. So, for instance, where Sally is in the book is that she is coming up to 40 and she's thinking, I've been here 10 years. What next? which I think like pretty much any woman in the vicinity of 40, you know, give or take late 30s through 50 is either thinking that or been through that, that kind of people coming up behind me who probably think that I'm not funny or clever or relevant, which kind of makes me feel like that a bit like what next? What next for me, for instance? I mean, I guess I think that probably one of the biggest gifts of getting older is, you know, you're able to have some perspective and things don't feel like the end of the world so much. Like, like, I mean, I guess this is, this is sort of a relief and a disappointment that maybe, maybe it doesn't feel like things feel less dramatic in good and bad ways. So for instance, I wouldn't think if I got some great review or some terrible review, it doesn't really make a difference. 
like one review doesn't really make a difference either way. Or, you know, if there was something like some professional thing that I hoped would happen and it didn't happen, I think you just sort of ride the waves of the good stuff and the bad stuff more at the same time. I mean, I'm very lucky and I recognize that and I appreciate it. So I signed my first contract with my American publisher 20 years ago in June 2003. Wow. And I'm still with that publisher. And so it's like to be able to write the books that I want to write and for them to find an audience, like that's a huge gift. I mean, I've certainly been nominated for a few prizes, actually more in the, in the UK than in the US. I've never won a big big prize. And I think there's probably a time when I thought, wouldn't that be lovely to win some big literary prize? And I would say, I don't really care about that. And again, it's like, I'm, I'm lucky. Like I have some career stability. I'm supported by my publisher. So it's not, I'm not saying who cares what happens. I, you know, I would never want to know my sales figures because it's only about the art. Like I am lucky in a business sense and in an artistic sense. But, you know, I think like if somebody says, oh, this book brought me so much pleasure to read or like I stayed up two hours past my usual bedtime, like I think, oh, my God, that's so lovely. Like That is the essential kind of great gift of being a writer that you can kind of feel like, oh, my God, I, I made this thing that like brought pleasure into someone else's life, especially potentially at a, at a time when like maybe things feel dark globally or personally for people. Something that occurred to me when I was reading it, the way the Indigo Girls keep popping up, were they like a teenage obsession of yours? Well, so I liked them as a teenager. You know, I started listening to them in high school and college, and then I, I kind of stopped. And then a friend of mine, I think it was in 2016, a friend of mine asked me if I wanted to go to one of their concerts for the first time. And I went and I did kind of think, oh my God, where have you been? Like, how was I not? you know, listening to you continuously. And, and I think I sort of embraced them again. So over the years, I probably listened to them sometimes, but there were some gaps, which is sort of like what my relationship is with Saturday Night Live. So I'm not quite as avid a lifelong fan of Sally. I mean, I do love the Indigo Girls, but I won't pretend that I've like listened to them, you know, continuously for 30 years. <laughs> so have you sold the film rights? Yes. I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about it, but yes. Not surprised. Are you going to have a go at the screenplay? No. <laughs> I mean, if someone really wanted me to, like, I would kind of consider it. I think I've, like, dabbled a little bit. Like, I one time, this is now almost 10 years ago, wrote a pilot for a TV show that never came into existence. And I think that I'm better at writing fiction than scripts. And it's it's so much less collaborative. Like, I, I mean, this is one thing that I appreciate about getting older is that I have faith in my own instincts. And so I can say, I think this will work for this novel. And you might disagree and we might have different taste, but I have confidence in my choice. And actually, an example of that is the email section in romantic comedy. I think a lot of people would say, like, I don't want to read 50 pages of emails. 
including, I think, both my UK editor, my US editor, who were extremely supportive. I think they thought, well, let's let's see how that turns out. Like, I'm not so sure about that. And I thought like, no, I, I definitely want to do this. Like, I can picture it perfectly. It's funny because a lot of people are like some of the early reviews, like on Goodreads, which I do look at, a lot of them will say almost like to my own surprise, I liked that part or that was my favorite part. Yeah. And then people will say that, that was my least favorite part. Or some people will say, wait, COVID makes an appearance in this book and this is supposed to be like a fun book and COVID shouldn't be here and I say no 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 it actually should like so I mean I, I feel confidence in my ability to make choices for the book I write and I'm okay with not everyone agreeing with me but when I write a screenplay if someone were to say the pacing is all wrong I do not have confidence in my own expertise so I don't think I, I think I'm kind of more vulnerable to being at the whims of other people's advice yeah and so a writer's room's not your like spiritual happy place then really I don't think so it's funny because there's ways in which you know I've been sitting in a room by myself for so long writing that I think oh it would be fun to do something more social or more interactive like I can see the appeal but to me writing is a solitary activity like it's like you go away and then you come back and talk about it there's a line when you're talking about Sally realizing that she writes differently when she's seeking male approval, even when she doesn't know she's seeking male approval. And I think that kind of thinking about other people when you're writing, it's quite a thing. Do you subconsciously seek anyone's approval when you're writing or not? Are you able to separate yourself? I think I can separate myself within reason. I think I probably do care, especially what other writers think and what people think who have expertise about the topic. So for instance, you know, if I heard from somebody who worked on Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign who read Rodham and said, I loved it, that's very meaningful to me. Or someone who worked in TV and says like, oh, I loved romantic comedy. Like someone reached out to me who did not work for Saturday Night Live, but did work in TV and said, I loved it. And I said, were there any TV mistakes that I made? <laughs> and he said there were none that I noticed, but like I didn't work in live TV. So I think I'm kind of doing that. But, you know, apropos of the gender thing, I live in a pretty female world. Like most of the people I work with are women. The vast majority of my readers are women. It would be very plausible that I could do an event with 50 people or with like 300 people. And there would be maybe between zero and three men in attendance. <laughs> Yeah, I've definitely been in those tents. You almost feel sorry for the guy because you kind of feel like at some point he's going to realise that he's the only one here, apart from the sound engineer. Almost always. It's like, you must be 47 now. Is that right? Yeah. How are you feeling about the whole ageing, anti-ageing, societal double um, standards thing? <laughs> So I read this book. Is this book on your radar? It's called um, My Last Innocent Year. And it's by a writer named, I think her name is Daisy Florin Alpert or Daisy Alpert Florin. I'm not sure. And it's about a woman who's at a college in 1998. I think you would find it super interesting. And actually, she might be like an interesting guest for you because she's so it's a person who's a first novelist at the age of 50. And I think in real life, this author is two years older than I am. And the protagonist in the book is like she's looking back on stuff that happened 30 years ago. And, and especially like she had a relationship with a professor and which happened during the time Monica Lewinsky and Bill 
Clinton's relationship was being discussed in the media. And so she's looking back, she's seeing it through the lens of being several decades older. And so I, I love being able to read a book by someone who's a peer and it has these kind of social and cultural references that that are familiar to me but it also has this gift of perspective like I think I think if you're a writer like there's all you know if you're an actress obviously everyone's obsessed with like what your face looks like as you get older but if you're a writer because you're you're kind of leading with your mind getting older is a gift and like just being more interesting and having life experiences and having perspective. And I was tweeting about like liking this book and liking it for these reasons. And then a few days later, I went to um, a drugstore and the man who was ringing me up says, do you want this? And it's something it's called menopause skincare. And I was oh, like, like number seven. Yeah. And it says it makes dull skin looks more radiant. And I thought to myself, like, like I started <laughs> laughing when he offered it to me. I mean, I, something that I find kind of like to be a bummer is that I think a lot of women will reflexively say this makes me look old. I mean, I hear myself say this and I actually try not to. This makes me look old or I feel so old as if old is a synonym for bad. Like mm. it's a privilege to get older. Like it's, you know, from like a health perspective and, and everything else. So that was humorous that this person, like I'm supposed to be insulted that he looked at me and was like, I'll give you this menopause. <laughs> I reject the idea that getting older is like bad or shameful. It's fun. It's so fun to like be in your late 40s and have, you know, friends in like your 40s or 50s or 60s and have like super interesting conversations with them and like super honest conversations and weird shit has happened to everyone by the time you're 40. Like weird shit has happened and dramatic stuff that you couldn't have imagined when you were in your 20s. There's also like painful things have happened to almost everybody, but I don't feel essentially bad about getting older. I feel essentially good and lucky. Yeah, it's so interesting you say that because I definitely think that when you're kind of in your late 40s or 50s or beyond and you meet someone like relatively either someone new that you've never met before or or just people that you hardly know it feels to me like somehow that hinterland whether or not your hinterland has anything in common with their hinterland you're still like at a point that makes you go straight in you know what I mean so you almost yeah. don't have to do all the preamble yeah I agree I totally agree it might be a couple of things like one having had more life experience experiences that you can kind of bond over being willing to be frank maybe also and candid and sort of knowing that time is short like (laughs) might as well figure out if like this is a person worth knowing or not worth knowing yeah just cut to the chase right I'm going to put you out of your misery and ask you the questions that I always ask yeah this has been a joy we would I feel like we would be friends if we met each other in some random situation where we were not knee to knee in a hotel. I choose to think that we would be friends. I would tell you my real secrets instead of my fake interview secrets. (laughs) Right. I'm going to make that happen. Okay. What's your emotional age? I think my emotional age and my age age are the same. I'm going to say 47. Why is that? Well, I don't feel far older or younger, you know? So it's sort of a default. I don't look in the mirror and feel shocked, like to not see a 20-year-old looking back at me. I think some people describe that. 
I, I do not feel that way. Uh, give us a book recommendation. A book recommendation is I just finished The Hero of This Book by Elizabeth McCracken. Is that book on your radar? Yeah, it has, it's just come out here. It's, it's on my pile, oh. but it's never yet made it to the top. It's really delightful. It's a 170 page book. The main character is wandering around London thinking about her mother who recently died. And it's it's a little confusing because it's called a novel, but it feels like it's a memoir. It's like really charming. I loved it and was totally charmed by it. Um, what advice would you give younger women? I think I would say find and hold on to your friends and nurture your friendships. One of life's greatest pleasures is like having old friends. I mean, making new friends too, but having old friends that you're close to and know really well. Have you got old friends? Yes. I'm very lucky on the, on the friend front. And I have new friends too actually. Who is an older woman who inspires you? So I have an Aunt Ellen who is 73. I've been very close to since I was about 14 or 15. And she's you know, she's retired. She has some like mobility limitations. I mean, she can she can sort of walk around, but not super quickly or not for a great distance. She's she's just very funny and very open to new experiences. And, you know, she travels and she texts. She's she's on this intergenerational. Do you do Wordle like on the New York Times? I do. Yeah, I hate myself, but I do it. Oh, I love it. But Anyway, she's like, like there's this intergenerational wordle text chain in my extended family that she's part of. So she's just like a fun, game, irreverent person. And I think that makes her a really wonderful role model. What's your superpower? So I think that my superpower is if I have a writer friend who's having a problem with a short story or a novel, I feel like I'm almost like a doctor who can diagnose the problem and like figure out what the treatment should be and and just kind of like ask them questions that help them figure out a path forward. That's good to know. You might regret telling me that. (laughs) (laughs) And how many folks do you give? It's funny because I've answered these before, right? Which, of course, I don't remember what I said. I think I would say three. (laughs) It's not zero, but it's not like (laughs) 10,000. People often answer differently and people often change their mind just in the course of the 30 seconds they're answering the question. What's the median? Well, quite often people say none and then they change their mind. Oh. I think it's more like they feel like they want to say none. And then when they say none, they immediately think that's not true. I mean, I think any author who admits reading her Goodreads reviews, which I've already done, (laughs) clearly does not give no fucks. (laughs) How much attention do you pay to them? Do you pay much? I reach a saturation point. Mm. Before a book comes out, I want to see which way the wind is blowing. So I'll kind of glance at things. And and that's the same with, with reviews. Like, you know, if it's the first day of publication and there's some major newspaper has published a review, I'll read it, whether it's negative or positive. But if it's like a month after publication and it's a, a newspaper I've never heard of and it's a bad review, then I would not read it. Do you have a, a solid support system? 
them at home so that if, if something sends you into a spin, you've got some, you know, your partner talks you off a ledge. I mean, my husband is a very emotionally calm person. It's funny. So I think that I can go into emotional spins, but I don't necessarily go into emotional spins very often about writing or publication. Like I'm pretty thick skinned. I mean, I've gotten plenty of bad reviews. Like I've been mocked, etc. Like I think I'm able to have perspective. So if someone were to write some scathing, mocking review, I have enough perspective to recognize like, you know, I'm so lucky. This is my seventh novel. Like it's getting reviewed. Like having a terrible book review is like a reflection more of privilege than of bad luck, you know? So, so I just don't, I don't know. I have a healthier perspective as a writer than as a human being. <laughs> Whereas, like, as a human being, I could have some encounter with a person and be like, they're so fucking annoying. And like, they don't see it from my perspective. What's wrong with them? <laughs> Thank you so much, Curtis. If you need fiction diagnosis, I would consider doing it. You can let me know. I really seriously might take you up on that. If I do it, you might be like, oh, that's not your superpower. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate, review and follow because it really does help other people find us. And if you'd like to support The Shift further, please consider becoming a member of our community. Find out more at steady.media forward slash The Shift. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.